In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, Reserve with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S., 2022. Now here we go. Your network is the most important thing you can have. I have never really burned any bridges in my career, and I try not to ever burn any bridges because you never know where you're going to meet somebody again. So relationships are important. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you interested in learning how to become the chef of a successful restaurant? How about starting your own catering company? Do you dream of launching a pop-up restaurant or maybe just a brick and mortar? What about fame? Have you ever wanted to become a celebrity chef? Today's guest, Chef Jason Fullylove, has done all of that and so much more. In our conversation, we explore the options you have as a chef these days and how to capitalize on each. So I went to Culinary Institute of America for continuing education. I didn't go for the whole curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough early on in my career to become an executive sous chef at a country club in Ohio, where I had opportunity to work for a really great chef. And that country club would close two months out of the year and they kept all their managers on salary. So during that time, they would send us to the Culinary Institute to take whatever courses we want. So I took things that I wanted to learn. You know, the Culinary Institute of America is like the best school in the country in Hyde Park, New York. I think it has that reputation and it was just a fantastic experience. So I think if I have to look back at my career and say what was like my first step out into the real world was when I left Ohio and moved to New York City with $500 in my pocket and five interviews lined up. That was the first time in my life where I was like, "Uh, maybe I think a little differently. So I had five interviews the day I arrived in New York City all spread out like two hours apart. One of my friends who's from New York helped me like map out the best subway routes to take to make it to all my interviews. I did that. I ended up working in New York for several years for a large company called BR Guest Restaurants. And I think that at that time, I had been an executive chef at a boutique hotel in downtown Cleveland. I had, like I said, I'd worked at a really nice country club and private dining clubs in Ohio. I'd worked for really great chefs. But when I worked in New York City, it was education on like a completely different level. I was running a high volume restaurant on the Upper West Side and it was for Be Our Guest Restaurants, which at the time I was there had been awarded the most efficient restaurant company in America. (laughs) Um, So I learned so much about the business aspect and how to monitor how your business is performing while working for that company. And I worked for them for several years. It was a great experience. I was young, single. I just worked all the time. I just went out with my friends. I mean, it was just a typical, I live in New York and I'm a young chef type of story, right? And then after that, I got recruited by the Ritz-Carlton and moved to St. Thomas. And I went there because like I said, I was still young and single and I still wanted to travel and see the world. And I was like, this is my chef time to do those type of things. And working for the Ritz-Carlton, I could do that. But while I was there, it was like the first 
economy crash happened around 2009. I'd fallen in love with a California girl while I was there. Every great chef I'd ever followed in New York City had worked in California at some point in their career. So I was like, I guess next stop's California. So I picked up and moved here in 2009. And after my first year or so in California, I was like, I love it here. I'm never going anywhere else for a while, at least. And I guess that's kind of how it all started. I'm curious to know, you worked at amazing places, but that doesn't always mean that you work for amazing people, um, which is 100% the case (laughs) in our industry. What did mentorship look like? You know, like working for Mark Peel or somebody that had made it to the top of the chain at the Ritz Carlton. What did you learn about leadership? What did you learn about being a Mm -hmm. chef? What did you learn about running your own business? And from who? As far as mentorship, I definitely have John Bontibble is probably like my first mentor is that, you know, this first country club I worked at in Ohio, he just took a liking to me, kind of took me under his wing. Then after that, in New York City, chef named John Litro, he had worked for BR Guest Restaurants for a very long time. He was my boss when I was there and he was just a great guy, just understood the business and the company really well. And then after that, I moved to California and then it was Mark Peel and then Joaquin Spichal for Patina Restaurant Group. And I wanted to come to California to work for those levels of chefs. And it was kind of crazy because when I was living in New York City, I got a book and it's a book I refer to a lot. And it was about California chefs and how they cook through the seasons. And Mark Peel and Joaquin were like all through this book. <laughs> and then, you know, to fast forward a few years later and I'm working with both of them, it was kind of like a dream come true. So to your point, I always had tried to make decisions in places I was going to go and who I was going to work for that were going to add to put another feather in my cap, right? I think I recognized myself as a brand at an early age in this industry. I thought of it as like the Thomas Keller effect. Thomas Keller can open a restaurant and it can be bad and it will still be full, right? (laughs) So because of his name. So I realized early on, chefs are brands, right? And I also realized early on that chaining yourself to one restaurant 80 hours a week, you're never going to make it out of the rat race into the next level of success and financial stability in your life, right? I also realized that early on and I like to travel and do different things. So I tried to maybe kind of subconsciously at times structure my career where it was like, I want to work for that guy. I want to live here. I want to learn this. And that's really just how I thought because I just wanted to be a better chef. I wanted to have more value because I also understood at a very young age. One of the country clubs I worked at, I worked for a great chef, an amazing chef. His name was Jerry Peters. He was like the opening chef of the Phoenician Hotel in Vegas <laughs> like many moons ago. He was a member of the Shane and he just got terminated a year after I was working for him and replaced by a guy who wasn't necessarily that great. And that kind of shocked me because it showed me chefs are very expendable in this business. So if you don't have value as a chef and you don't understand that early on, you can just be expendable your whole career. And you need to always have something to fall back on. And I think the more you know, the more resources you have, the more opportunities you have to make money, to start businesses and to do different things and to just not again, be chained to that one stove for 80 hours a week until the day you die. Right. I mean, Anthony Bourdain said that in his book, I think he, he said, if you want to be a chef, peel a hundred pound bag of carrots and do that over and over again every day to the day you die. That's literally a quote from Anthony Bourdain book. I'm not making this up. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of guys approach this business. I was never really that guy. I mean, even before I started taking my chef career seriously, I was into music and I produced albums, made records. And I was always a guy who was like, how do we get our music in? How do we perform at that club? How do we 
start our own record label? How do we press our own CDs? How do we start our own website? I was thinking like that my whole life, even before I even knew really what an entrepreneur was. That's just who I was as a person, right? So it's not surprising to me that today I figured out a way to have my own business in this industry and make it somewhat of a success where I don't feel the need to have to go work for someone else and go take that job where I'm going to be miserable right now. You know what I'm saying? Out of necessity. So I hope that answers that question. That's fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) It's unfair to begin with the end in mind because you get so much closer to where you want to be. Sure. I could point to our industry and say that that's more often than not the case, but I think it's true. For a lot of people, I think you get out of school and the next thing you do is you get a job and then maybe you get another job and maybe you get another job, but you're always focused on your next step, not 10 steps down, not how does this get me to where I want to be? And look, I mean, I was actually talking with Sammy, Sammy Monsoor about this the other day, because, you know, in our lives, in our businesses, momentum was a very real thing. When we had positive momentum going in the direction we wanted to go, it was great. But when it became apparent that that wasn't the direction we wanted to go, it was hard to move because all the momentum was in this direction, right? This is what you do now. This is the box that you're in. This is what people expect from you. And more importantly, this is what people are willing to give you money to do. And so there's a ton of positive momentum in your career. You're doing well. You worked a bunch of great places. You're working at Patina. And then at some point, the thought hits you, right? Like, I want to go independent. I want to do my own thing which is not building momentum, it's breaking momentum. My career is headed in this particular direction. I would like to take this opportunity to throw that in the trash can and start all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Against everyone's advice. Right. Mom, (laughs) Dad, what do you think I should do? Cool, I'll do the opposite. Mentors that I respect. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. um, (laughs) Take me through that thought process and then take me through... What it looked yeah, like. Yeah. When I was the chef at the Malibu Pier restaurant and bar, that was probably one of my happiest moments. It was probably one of my favorite jobs. And you got to think, before that, I was the executive chef at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is probably actually my favorite job of my entire life. I could just shower myself with my own creativity. <laughs> like It's like a dream job for a chef. Also, I had a great relationship with Joe Keeb and the executives of Patina. So if I wanted to start a new program or if I had an idea for something... They just be like presented and then they'd say, yeah, go ahead. It's literally like they just gave me the keys to this facility and ran away and said, just make it work. Right. And we attacked it. I mean, we had an amazing team there. And full disclosure, while I was there, I got a lot of calls for jobs. I got a lot of job offers. But I said that if I leave this place, I love this company. I love this job so much. It's going to be for something special. So I left to do the Malibu Pier because I also kind of realized, again, adding value to myself. I needed to build a restaurant to continue to not just kind of get pigeonholed into being, I guess, like a facility chef. You know what I'm saying? Because not everybody's going to go eat at Lockmore, right? It's not everybody's going to get invited to the Art and Film Gala, which is fine. I mean, I have great friends who've done that for 30 years, retired, made tons of money, and they're good to go. I just always wanted to do a restaurant. So I had an amazing opportunity to do a completely sustainable, organic seafood restaurant right on the Malibu Pier. 250 seats. It was two buildings split. It was the restaurant on one side, the bar on one side. The space had set dormant for like four years. Before that, it was like a Red Robins or something and got to hire my own team. We operated five different menus all from scratch, tasting menus, brunch, lunch, dinner, pastry, like every, it was just fantastic. I was buying my fish from a fisher, 
person. Uh, it was just like everything that a chef could want, right? I was dealing with a forager. It was great. It was fantastic. And then fast forward like a year later, the owner decides to sell the restaurant, told the new owner that I would stay on without talking to me. And the new owner wanted to bring in their own menu. And I was like, you know what? This isn't for me anymore, you know, and that's fine. And I stayed on for a month, helped the transition. I left, took some time off, traveled around Europe. I ate. And I was starting to think about like, who am I as a chef and what do I want to bring to the table? And there was not anyone doing what I thought Barbara Jean was in LA at the time, or not really even in America other than, you know, like Marcus Samuelson, approaching kind of like African-American soul food and comfort food with like a fine dining mentality, right? Which is part of the reason why I love what Sam was doing at Pro and Proper. So I wanted to do that. But again, you know, I'm at a point in my career where I'm just a working chef. I'm a successful working chef, but it's not like I have a ton of friends with millions of dollars laying around that can invest in a restaurant. So I started it out as a pop-up and I did it as a pop-up for years. And then I outgrew the pop-up space. So then my business model was I would go on Eater. I would see what small restaurant closed. And then I would try to call the owner of the space and say, hey, I have a concept. I have a following. Can we work out a deal? And I got really good at that model to the point I had like three barbecue locations with like little to no money now, right? Years go by. And then eventually I signed a licensing deal for the LAFC Stadium, which was a really good deal for me financially. We don't need to get into nuts and bolts of it, but it gave me some time to breathe because holding the weight of trying to build that brand and believing in that brand and the support that I got from people for doing that was just insane. And it just kept me going. So I was able to do that, sign a licensing deal. Fast forward, 2020 happened and everybody's freaking out, trying to figure out what they're going to do next, including myself. And I got an opportunity to be on a preferred catering list for a large facility. And then catering was something that I always done. My friends would call me and say, hey, I'm getting married. Can you do my wedding? I'd be like, cool, I'll do it. I'll make some extra money. But I never like set up, marketed a catering company with an LLC and like did the insurance and the whole thing. So this opportunity forced me to do that. Then I started marketing it. And since 2020, that special events and catering company has been the most successful thing I've ever done. Every year we see a 30% growth and I work less than I ever have before in my life. And it's insane. So it's allowed me to do other things. Like I'm starting my own product line now. I have a hot sauce, a marinated brine. I just did my first cookbook. I'm funding everything myself. My pre-orders for my cookbook are going to go up on our website this week. Again, it's just looking at... Um, the hospitality space is so broad and there's so many ways to make money and build your brand in it. And I'm just trying to focus in on those things and grasp those opportunities. Just to give you an idea, like my catering company has done just this year, we've done uh, the Grammys. I had done the Grammys before with Patina Group, but this is the first time it was like my team, my menu, 5,000 people. We did the inauguration for Mayor Karen Bass. We've done seven events for her this year. We have a VIP client that we do stuff for them as well that have just won a Grammy. A lot of our special events and catering business is word of mouth. But one thing that I'm struggling with is a lot of times people reach out to me and they want us to do an event, but I have a standard to maintain because I pay my staff like a premium because I do work with really great people in front of the house and back of the house. And just in order for me to start up an event costs a lot of money. So I can't cut my costs. And I realized, and I struggled with this a lot. And I think just this year, after three years of business, I came to the conclusion that, and you know this too, in order for a business to succeed, you have to know who you are, right? We are a premium catering company. We may not be the one for you. It's just that simple. And I can't devalue us because someone can't 
come up with what we require for our pricing structure. I just can't. That's just not how we operate because we use really great products, really great service, great equipment. <laughs> it costs what? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just our prices. And coming to that realization this year has kind of freed me up from a lot of stress as to how to, I guess, expand that business. That business is expanding naturally. And I'm figuring out different ways to make money. Like I said, again, with the hot sauce company and with the cookbooks and different other things that I'm working on at the moment, I can't really speak about, but it's been really good for me. And I think that had I not taken that risk with Barbara Jean and worked my ass off for like four years and made no money and been stressed out, I wouldn't be in this position that I am today. That's the lesson. What you're describing, it reminds me of, are you familiar with Naval Ravikant? I'm not. He's like this venture capitalist philosopher, if there is such yeah. a thing. I'm um, sure there is. <laughs> and, and what he talks about is he talks about leverage a lot mm -hmm. in that yeah. everybody's in this rat race to see how much money they can make for their mm -hmm. time. That's the value exchange. I give you my time. I give you my skill. I give you my effort. In exchange, yeah. you give me money. And there's this right. traditional definition of success where the more money you make for your time, the wealthier you are. Where yeah. what you're talking about is true leverage, which is I build this thing, this thing scales up, but it doesn't require more of my time. Yeah. And I make more and more as this thing scales up and up. And this is true wealth because I tend to get back more of my time. Look at the catering and look at how yes. the operation has scaled. And the bigger mm -hmm. it gets, the less time you spend on it. There's no difference between selling five bottles of hot sauce and 500,000. Right. right. You're not bottling it in your garage. And yeah. if you were, that should go on the label. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what it speaks to is it, you know, everybody's looking to get that next best job so that they can get more money to create that, what is always going to be an inequitable value exchange where when you retire, you stop making money because you've stopped working. And it feels like a beautiful story, but I am confident that like the reason that you have done well in life is because you have tried and failed and tried again. Oh, absolutely. And I learn constantly. A lot of times that when you have your own business and you get to work with who you want, you tend to work with people that you think you're friendly with. And then you realize, oh, I have to treat this like a business and you work for me. We can still be friends but I need you to understand this about the business. So there's some of that that happened this year, dealing with certain clients that there is some time to money value, right? So if I have a client that is, again, going back to the financial part of it, is trying to nickel and dime me to the point where it's taking so much of my time, I have to walk away from the client. It's not worth it at that point because I can be spending that time doing something else. But going back to that, like, I don't want to sound like I'm totally against restaurants. I absolutely love restaurants and I hope to get back into a restaurant one day soon. It's definitely in the plans. I want to start with something that's definitely small and manageable, kind of like what I did with Barbara Jean. I have some new concepts that I'm working on. I want to do it in South Bay too, where we just, we moved in 2020. I think that there's this area can't support a really good restaurant. There's not a ton of great restaurants out here. So there's not a ton of competition for what we try to do out here. So my goal is to kind of follow Joakim Spichal mindset is I want to build my catering company. I want to have a strong restaurant company. I want to have brands. He's got his own wine now, right? I want to have cookbooks like him. You know, <laughs> I want to have performing arts centers. From where we are today, and this sounds crazy saying it, that's my goal in the next 10 years. As crazy as it sounded that I was going to start Barbara Jean with no money six years ago and everybody told me not to do it. But 
what are the other options? Either I try to push everything I do 100% while I can, or I just don't. And I just accept what life gives me. And I'm not that person. I've never been that person. So, Well, then you have a model. You're able to look and see what he did, and you're able to emulate. I think that so many of us are inspired by the people that we work with and the people that yeah. brought us up, that we work directly above, as opposed to looking over and to the left and seeing yeah. this other person that actually more closely aligns with our version of success. I don't think we're trying to shit on restaurants, but it's also important yeah. to highlight that it's a big world. And there I owe are, everything I have in this world to restaurants. For so. <laughs> sure. There are more options afforded to you as a chef today than there have ever been. And definitely probably starting with that Wolfgang Puck era 35, 40 years ago. I was just going to say this. I mean, if you look at that era, Wolfgang Puck, Joakim and Mark Peel, Nancy Silverton, the chefs that came up in that era, that was a different time. And there wasn't as many great chefs then. They still corner the market in many ways. You know, in a Bro, lot of I subscribe to Jeremiah Towers uh, <laughs> newsletter exactly. weekly and I'm yeah. reading it. Exactly. Right. And that's fine. I love that. But then I think the next shift was we saw the Roy Choi era and he turned the industry on its head. And I think people kind of went, oh, there's a different way to do this thing. You know what I'm saying? And that's another friend of mine that just watching him and his success and everything he's done is just it's mind blowing. But I have a friend now, young African-American chef, uh, Naisha, and we've had a conversation recently where we were like, do we really need restaurants right now? Right. <laughs> I, I have known Naisha for years, and her answer has consistently been no yeah. since Santa Monica. I mean, and it's not like we're against it, but you know the stress, the politics that come with dealing with the day-to-day, the ownership, the investors. And I said to her, and this is where I am right now, if the situation is right, you know it's going to be right. We've been through it the tough way so many times. And I think that in the back of our mind, all chefs want that restaurant. We kind of need that, but we're not in a hurry to get it right now. So. I think there's also something to be said for a chef that owns a restaurant that they don't pull a salary from. Yeah. Like a true chef owner, right? Where you chart the culinary direction, you're taking distributions off that, but that's not your job. And that is not an opportunity that is extended to chefs traditionally. That is something that they have to earn by going out and becoming a TV superstar like Naisha, right? And then taking your own money and investing it into something that is yours, truly yours, yeah. that mm-hmm. works for you instead of you working for it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, that's definitely the goal and dream, so for sure. You listen to this show because you're looking for tools to improve your life and your business. And this tool is going to be a game changer for you and your team. Snibs are the world's most comfortable non-slip work shoe for folks like us who work on our feet eight plus hours a day. And they can stand up to the elements of a restaurant from water to flour. Trusted by over 100,000 hospitality workers, these shoes have over 1,000 five-star reviews. Best yet, Snibs is the brainchild of an award-winning chef and a world-class orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Snib. Yep, that's where the name comes from, creating the world's most comfortable work shoe. It looks great too. Head to snibs.co to experience the difference from first wear and use the promo code full comp to get 10% off your first pair. That's S N I B B S dot C O. And make sure you use the code full comp to get 10% off your first pair. Let's talk about who, not how. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure things out on our own. Not that that is yeah. a 
wasted effort, but there's some things you just don't know. And mm -hmm. the time that it'll take you to figure it out, you could actually be working on the solution because you took five minutes to ask somebody or recruit somebody exactly, or hire yeah. somebody that's an expert in the field. How has that philosophy impacted your life and your career? It's made my life so much easier. So even now, I've never done a product before. So now I'm faced with, I have people interested in this product that I have faster than I originally thought. I wanted to take this first year, six months to a year, to just get this product promoted to like influencers and to chefs and just get it into people's hands and do the book. I have people right now that want to put it in large facilities. So now I'm working on trying to find distribution to get it to these people because I didn't think I'd be faced with that problem for a year, right? So I'm getting on the phone, calling different people I know who've launched products before, getting different quotes. Your network is the most important thing you can have. I have never really burned any bridges in my career, and I try not to ever burn any bridges because you never know where you're going to meet somebody again. So relationships are important. You seem like a man that works with a sense of urgency. And so, you know, let's use the hot sauce as a great example. So like you're going to do it, you've got this plan, you want to pace it out slowly and methodically, and then all of these people want it. And I'm sure you get that thing that we all get where it's like, oh my God, now I have to Now I got to react. Right? <laughs> but do you? Being as far along in your career as you are and seeing every false flag and people pushing their problems off on you, we need this and we need it now, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm fine. How do you determine what is a priority? How do you triage, especially as it relates to money now versus money tomorrow with everything you have going on? The most important thing is to look at what your original long-term plan was, and that can kind of adjust along the way. Whatever your end goal is for whatever you're working on, never lose sight of that, right? Because things are going to happen along the way that you can't predict. And that's in any restaurant, any catering event, any product that you launch, whatever the case may be in any business. So never lose sight of what your goal is. And before I make any final decisions, I talk to a lot of people and then I probably end up doing whatever I wanted to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you still got to have those conversations, yeah. right? I trust myself, but I also am going to listen to other people and I have people that I respect that I listen to. But it's important to kind of talk through those issues, but also maintain your eye on your final goal. What is your final goal with whatever you're working on? And just keep focusing on that. Um, and again, it's as far as the sense of urgency is concerned, people really want something, they'll wait for it. So you have to kind of be respectful of their time, but also work on your own terms because you need to make the right decisions. That's it. You panic. Are there still nights where like, you know, your All wife is sleeping next to you and <laughs> you're just staring up at the, the ceiling, trying not to hyperventilate and wake her up. All the time. No, it's not that bad. There's definitely a couple nights recently that I was like having trouble sleeping, but that's very rare that I have trouble sleeping. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's more of an excitement. It's like I can probably count on one hand, you know, well, maybe two. But whenever I was the night before opening a restaurant, I could never sleep. <laughs> just I've never been. Just my mind just going. It depends on what's going on. But just as far as panic, I think you have to be able to embrace and be okay with uncertainty and failure as an entrepreneur. You have to revel in it, right? Because everything is a lesson learned, regardless if it works or not. So if something bad happens, I now I'm very good at stepping back and saying, what was the lesson here? And just cutting away all the bullshit. What was the lesson here? What was I supposed to learn from this situation? That's what keeps me calm and focused. That's it. Because at this point, I've been doing this for so long that I have to trust myself, right? I have to know that I'm making good decisions. I have a clear goal in mind. 
I know what I'm doing. My product is good. I have a good network. People respect me. So what was the lesson here? So I just kind of have to cut through all the BS. One of my mentors is Mario Del Perro, founder of Mendocino mm-hmm. Farms and partner in Dom yeah. Food Group. And we were talking this morning and we were talking about that panic and that stress and like what you do with it. Because if you didn't have it before the industry, it's bred into you because every time yeah. the phone rings, it's bad news. Never once has anyone called <laughs> to see how I'm doing in the middle yeah. of service, right? Right. Hey, right. Josh, want to check on on you? Make sure you're good, right? Yeah. It's always like the floor drains have backed up <laughs> and the dishwasher drowned. And there's a fire. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and in trying to prevent the flood, lit the entire kitchen on fire. It's always bad news when the phone rings, right? Still, I mean, I haven't been in active operations in three years. And every time the yeah. phone rings, I'm like, who's you calling a room, bad. right? Who's calling a room in my day? <laughs> yeah. Right. Especially yeah. like if by the time it gets kicked up to me, I mean, mm-hmm. it is just a mountain of a problem that everyone else has tried to solve unsuccessfully. But what he said was, and, and it speaks very much to what you said, is he said, It's all about connecting the dots. When something bad happens, rather than sitting in that thing, look back and connect the dots that led to this thing. Figure out what you can learn from it and move forward. A unique perspective that he offered that I just thought was incredibly valuable, and he's reiterated this to me many, many times, is Mm -hmm. every blessing is a curse and every curse is a blessing. And it's so difficult to tell. So true. Right. What that disappointment is that you're dealing with in this moment, how that doesn't manifest into something so much better than you could have ever imagined. And that's not like glass half full shit. Like it's Mm -hmm. actually true. And that keeps you balanced, right? Something really good happens. Don't over celebrate. Something really bad happens. Don't beat yourself up too bad. Stay somewhere in the middle and everything's going to be fine, right? If something really good happens, okay, how did I make this happen? How can I use this to make the next great thing happen? everything's not an end-all be-all. It's just, it's a continuation of the next thing over and over and over again. And so you're your greatest asset. You're also your greatest liability. And for me, at least, and I want to get your opinion on this, the Mm -hmm. hurdle has always been reminding myself. So I do the same goal setting that everyone else, just like every restaurateur on the planet, somewhere in a drawer has their mission statement, their core values and all of that. Mm -hmm. And they never pull it out to refresh. I think it's true of so many (laughs) business owners. But it's impossible to know what an opportunity is or a distraction and be able to tell the difference between the two mm-hmm. unless you have that clear focus on destination. Learning to say no is very powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. Like I can't do every food and wine event in the city. Like it's just this one thing I can't, you know, I have my time. I need to spend it on things that are going to benefit my business at this point. It's going to benefit my staff. I have a staff I need to take care of that have been really good to me. So Yeah, that's a really good point. Like learning to say no and learning how to balance things out is super important for your success. But doesn't it feel like shit? I mean, we're in the hospitality industry, you know? Not anymore. I think it used to. I think I'm kind of good at it now. It doesn't bother me as much now. (laughs) Like I'm just just at the point where it's like, I'm so super focused. Right. I'm also very happy with kind of like what I've been able to do on my station in life. And I know I have so many friends that are just amazing chefs that are still, you know, they change jobs every two years and which is fine. I mean, I'm sure they're happy, but it's like, it's not for me. I'm happy that I don't feel that I'm stuck in that uncertain situation because I feel like the uncertainty that I have now is like, I realize if I put as much energy as I put into working for other people into working for myself, I'm going to be fine. And when you get to that point, it's a good place to be. To your point, I mean, how many people do you know didn't take the entrepreneurial route, 
working for other people because that was the safe thing to do. And then the restaurant goes out of business and they lose their job. All the time. And they the end time. up asked out like they would have yeah. had they tried on their own. Yeah, for sure. What's interesting is I think since 2020 that things have been kind of upside down. I'm not sure where all the chefs went, but I have spoken to some people at some large facilities that are still looking for chefs and have a hard time finding people to work for them. We've had kind of a bad reputation in our industry for having kind of toxic work environment. So it's really important for me that anybody that I work with truly enjoys working for me and they feel heard and respected. I just want to leave my industry better than I found it. That's my biggest goal. Beyond all the business and the success and the goals and building the company up, like, and I know the larger we get, the harder that's going to be, but that's super important to me. Talk to me about life lessons. So I'm sure that there are a ton that came out of mistakes and mm -hmm. a bunch that came out of successes. What have you found that's universally true? When you talk to young chefs that say, yo, I want to be where you are, it's certainly not a linear path, but there's certainly philosophies that have served you well. I think communication is definitely number one, and it sounds cliche, but I've learned that being open and honest with my staff, communicating to them is probably the most valuable thing that I have learned. I've learned this during Barbara Jean because it was probably the most stressed I'd ever been in my life. Um, <laughs> and then you tend to sometimes shut down when you're stressed and not be the best communicator. And I've learned that that's not the way to go, especially when you have people that believe in you are showing up to work for you and are giving you their all. Communication is the number one thing. And I try to be so much better at that today and just being honest and open about the situation of where the business is and what we need to do and what's expected. Definitely, that's like the number one life lessons, because I don't want anyone to feel like they weren't told something that was happening or they were hit blindsided. Which is weird because I was told in New York City by a chef that I greatly respect, Luis Nieto. I never forget he told me this. He's like, you can never over inform people. And I kind of held on to that my whole career in the back of my mind, but it never really made sense until I owned my own business. <laughs> yeah. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I can't sit here and say that every situation I've had was bad, but I've had some bad situations. And I think that we need to hold each other accountable. We need to be better communicators. We need to be better mentors. I want to see people in this industry get real education, real job training, and real benefits and a real chance at having like a happy life. Those are the things that I want. I try to instill into my staff skills that they can take with them anywhere and not just cooking skills, management skills financial skills, communication skills. I think that a lot of times we, in busy restaurants, you just want the guy to make the salad perfectly every time. And then it's just kind of like a robotic thing and you don't look at him as a person. He's just a guy that does this every single day. We got to be a little bit more human in our business, I think. And I think that will help us change our reputation for being kind of like a toxic environment in some cases. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. 
To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Chef Jason Fully Love. For more information on the chef, visit jasonfullylove.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.